Father, we thank you again for this beautiful day, for the beautiful music that lifts our hearts and lifts our spirits to you. And now we open our hearts and our minds to allow you by your spirit to speak into our lives, to challenge us, encourage us. Father, we just thank you for your grace that's working in our lives. And Lord, your word says that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of men all that God has prepared for those who love him. But your spirit's been given to us to reveal those to us. And we turn to the Holy Spirit right now and open our hearts to allow him to speak into our lives. And we thank you for what he's going to say in advance. And we rely upon him to do this. In Jesus' name, amen and amen and amen. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. And I want to give you a little background because this is a little bit of a different resurrection message. The title of it is The Road to the Resurrection. Most Easter resurrection messages are about the resurrection and what happens after. But I was, had no sense of what to, to minister today. And sometimes I get it in advance and sometimes we're in a series, so it's sort of obvious what to do next. And sometimes it's at the last moment. But I'm only going to do what I feel goes off in my spirit. And I was in here, we decided to set Friday aside uh, and open the church up for people to come in and pray. And, and with the idea of just kind of meditating on and praying about what happened on that Friday before the resurrection day. And as we were doing that, and I was in here for a good part of the day, and I was pleased there were people in here all the time. Uh, not a crowd, but that's okay. I know people have things to do, but there was always somebody else in here besides me. And just praying and meditating, and, and I, I really felt the Lord call me back to something. And it's this. When I was raised in church, I was raised in one denomination, um, and it was a, I was Episcopalian. My family was Episcopalian, and then uh, my mother remarried into a Presbyterian family. And, then, um, and, and we had a tradition uh, it, on Good Friday is that we went to church. And I remember even when I practiced law, I would find a church in Boston, and I would slip in between the hours of 12 and 3, they spent time there meditating on and the words of Christ from the cross and what happened on that day. And then we got married and, and I got into, into my career and we got raising a family and we ended up in a congregational church, a New England congregational church, and I became a deacon in that church. And, um, and we celebrated, we had, we had things going on all Holy Week. Um, and even on Thursday night, Maundy Thursday, we had a, a, a supper, we had a... a we, we celebrated the Last Supper together, and as deacons, we participated. It was a whole ceremony, and um, I was thinking in here and meditating on all this on Friday and realizing once we got saved and we got uh, into the charismatic move and into the Word of Faith movement, what happened to Good Friday? We've jumped to Resurrection Sunday, and what we're here to celebrate and what Christians celebrate in Resurrection the resurrection is Christ has defeated the power of death. He said in, in, in Revelation, he said, I'm the one that was dead and now I'm alive and I have in my hands the key of hell and the grave. So he's defeated death for a Christian. The only death you're ever going to feel is like taking your sport coat off or your suit coat off and dropping it, taking this body off and dropping it and picking up your new one. 
And it's going to be as easy as that because he's been raised from the dead. He went ahead of us and was raised from the dead. His resurrection from the dead means he's defeated the power of Satan. First John tells us that he came to destroy the works of the evil one. Well, he succeeded. He destroyed those works. And the power of sin has been destroyed. So the power of the resurrection, the significance of the resurrection to a Christian, that's the culmination of everything we celebrate. But we tend to jump to that without going through what he went through to get there. So we're going to go back today and do something a little different. We're going to walk with the journey of the disciples because so often it's focused on what Jesus did. But he did this as a forerunner for us. But we're going to walk through the disciples' road to the resurrection, through the journey that they went through, and then we're going to see how that applies to us. It's interesting because when, when Jesus came to them and chose them, he didn't come to them and said, Matthew, come join my church. John, I'm starting a new religion. Would you come and join that religion? Peter, I've got a new movement I'm starting. I want you to join that movement. He went to them personally and said, Jerry, come follow me. Ron, come, come follow me. It was a personal invitation to leave everything they had and come follow him. And there was something about him that was irresistible. And they came and they followed him and they left everything in following him. He didn't tell them where they were going. Kids want to know where we're going. You know, I remember when we would go on trips with our kids in the car, you know, they'd, especially long trips, I would usually start them like at four in the morning, so they're all asleep. And I'm driving awake, so when the sun comes up, it was like a new day. So we got like three or four hours under our belt before they all woke up and, you know, are we there yet? Is it time for lunch, breakfast, you know? Just being kids, and I'm, I'm sure I did that as a as a kid too, it's just long enough I don't remember that, but I'm sure I did it too and so did you. Back when we made those trips, we didn't have GPS or SPGS or whatever it is. We didn't have the internet. We had, when we were going to go on a long trip, we got a thing called a triptych. Anybody remember what those things were? It was a little flip sheet and you went to AAA and you said, I want to go from Providence to, you know, Indianapolis or wherever it was. We went to see her folks in Dayton, Ohio, so they give us one. They give you a map to show you where you started and where you're going to end up and they'd show you the route. But the real thing that you used was this flip chart and it would show you each segment, about 50 miles or so, how long it was... Some of those took so long. My goodness, you know. You, one of them would be 10 minutes and the next would be two hours. And you say, is it ever, I'm ever going to get there. And you flip this. What it was telling you when you began the journey, where you were going to go, what you were going to go through to get there. So you flip the page and it had an orange all down the middle of it. Remember what that means? That means there's construction. You better be patient and slow down because it's going to take you a while to go through this section. There might be other warnings on there, like watch your speed and because it's posted. And it, so the, what there was was there were details along the way from where you were starting to where you were going telling you what you were going to encounter and what you were going to go through. But when Jesus called his disciples, he didn't give them a triptych. He just said, you come follow me. He didn't tell them where they're going. They just said, come, get in the car and follow me. Well, as they did that, they went through all kinds of experiences. And as they went through these experiences together, they saw the dead rays. They saw blind eyes open, deaf ears stuffed, not just one or two, a multitude. They saw lame people walk. They saw people without limbs have the limbs grow out. They saw people, they saw on one occasion, actually two occasions, they saw 
20,000 or more people fed with a little boy's lunch. They watched him walk on water and take one of them with him. They watched him speak to storms, and the storms just quilled, quieted at his voice. And all along, they're beginning to form in their own mind three things at least. They're forming an expectation of what's going to happen in the future. Where is this going from here? Where is this leading? Because human beings do that. We're very rarely content to live in the moment. We want to know where is it going? Where is this taking us? We look back too much and see where we've been, and we look forward too much when the Bible... Jesus said, you know, don't worry about tomorrow. There's enough trouble you'll have to deal with tomorrow. Just enjoy today. Live through today. God's always the God of now. He's not the God of yesterday and he's not the God of tomorrow. He's now. And we need to learn to live in the now. And, and, but, but they're human, so they must have been looking forward. We know some things about what they were thinking because they had some kind of anticipation because several times they say to him, is it now you're going to establish the kingdom? So see, they had enough knowledge to know that the Messiah, when he came, was going was to be a king. What they didn't understand is before he become a king... He had to go through Isaiah 53, which is he had to suffer. Which is why so many of them missed who he was because he didn't fit the image that they had for the Messiah. He didn't come as a king reigning. He came as a suffering servant. And so even his disciples didn't get it. You can tell because as some of the scriptures we're going to learn, even at the end, they still weren't sure. There were times they got it and times it really just wasn't quite settled in. Kind of like some of us also. Even his half-brothers came to him at one point and said, and his mother, who had an angel appear to her, said, are you sure you're the right one? And so they're human. And as they're walking with him and going through these experiences, they're developing certain expectations of what's going to happen. He's going to come to... Because remember... Israel at that time was under the total domination of Rome, especially in Jerusalem. Every corner you turned, there were Roman soldiers there. And you didn't know when the ground would start rumbling and horses would come through. And these, these a legion of horses would come through with these soldiers on them with their armor and their spears just running fear through the hearts of people. You didn't know when that was going to happen. And not just there, they were also up in Galilee where, this, where Jesus grew up and where they started the, he started his ministry. So there was, the, 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 and of course, the taxes that the Romans charged, above and beyond the temple tax that the, that, the, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees charged was the Roman tax. So this was a heavy burden on them and they were waiting for the day God's deliverer was going to come and they assumed that God was going to send a deliverer to deliver them from Caesar and from the power of Rome. So this hope had to be rising in them, this expectation. This is the one. He's going to come and deliver us. And they were looking at him and looking at how he handled the challenges. They, some of them were with him in Nazareth when he basically announced who he was to his own people and they rose up to stone him to death and he just turned and walked through the crowd. They couldn't touch him. Wow, that's impressive. Boy, we've hooked our cart to the right horse here. We've, hooked our, we've, we've, we've joined our future to the right one. Remember, they left everything to follow him. And there must have been times, especially at night around a fire, when they reflected back over and said, did we make the right decision? I know we did at the moment, but did we make the... Ever do that? You make something on inspiration, you know, and then you look back, was it the right one? 
So they had expectations. They had ambitions. Ambitions. They were human like you and me. There was a pecking order within his disciples. You had the multitudes that followed him. Then you had a large group of disciples called the Seventy. And then you had an inner group called the Twelve, the Apostles of the Lamb. And then among them you had three that were the most intimate with him, Peter, James, and John. And out of those, Jesus, Peter or John was the closest to him relationally, but Peter was the mouthpiece for all of them. And he had a big mouth too. And there was a pecking order among them. At one point, James and John's mother comes to him and says, Good master, I would like a request of you that one of my sons sits on your left and one of your son on the right, one of my sons on the right in your kingdom when you enter into your kingdom. But if you read the scriptures, you'll find the rest of them got mad. Why? Because they had the same ambition. Somewhere else, in one of the other versions, of, it talks about they were all squabbling among, vying for the position of highest next to him. So they had their own ambitions, what they wanted out of this. They had expectation of where this was going to take them. They had their own ambitions of, what, don't look at me like that, you have them too. You have your expectations of, what, is it, what, what am I going to get out of this being a Christian? What's this going to do for me? What's this going to do for my family? And in the generation you and I live, the church has been inundated with expectations of how God's going to bless us and the things God's going to do for us. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's unbalanced and we've come away with these expectations of what God owes us. And then we vie for positions. Well, God's given me this gift and God's given me this thing and, 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 and you know, that puts me in this position. So they had expectations and they had ambition. And they also had a confidence in themselves. They had a confidence in who they were. They had a confidence in their commitment to Him. Ever be confident in your own intentions? All of us have been. You look at yourself and say, well, I'm, I'm a little, I may not be the strongest Christian, but I'm better than they are. Why? Because I've got some confidence in me. And this is the group. We're, we're not talking about this. We're talking about his staff. We're talking about the ones that walked with him for three and a half years, that he trained. He sent them out on missions and they came back. He deposited himself in them. He trained them. And they still had all of this stuff in them that was them mixed in with him. And they do this for three plus years. And then we come to Matthew 25. With all this background, with all of this, they now come to what we call Holy Week. They didn't know what it was, other than it was the time for the Passover. Not Matthew 26, I'm sorry. 21. It's the 20s there somewhere. You're not too far away. With all that background, this is all inside of them. When they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Loosen them and bring them to me. And if anyone says to you, 
says anything to you about it, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately they will say, He will send them. All of this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt and a foal of a donkey. Stop there a second. They knew that prophecy. They knew that prophecy. They knew that that prophecy told them that their king was going to come into Jerusalem on a donkey, on a foal. So when Jesus sends them out to get that foal and that donkey, they know that prophecy. They know that's stirring in them the expectation. He's now going to reveal himself as king. He's now going to come in and announce himself as king. And he's going to begin his kingdom reign. And we're right there with him. We've gone through the separation. We've left our families. We've left our businesses. We've given up everything and followed him. We've gone through these three plus years of all that we've gone through. And now it's going to come to its culmination. And his kingdom is going to come. He's going to announce his kingdom. He's going to reveal himself as king. Wow, it's going to confirm everything we believed. That's what those words meant to them. That's what those words meant to them. Verse 6. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they laid their clothes on them, and they set him up on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down branches from the trees. That's why we called, would have called last Sunday Palm Sunday. Branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now they're coming... Back in verse 1, they're coming out of the Mount of Olives down the descent through the Kidron Valley and they're about to come up into the ascent into Jerusalem through the gate. And what we're going to read right now is the crowd coming out. Now we're going to read this and we're going to read this. Remember, we're one of the disciples. We're walking through this as if we were a disciple. So you're not one of the crowd. You're one of the disciples listening to the crowd. You're one of the disciples feeling the energy and the enthusiasm and the zeal of this crowd. So kind of picture yourself in the middle of this. Verse 8. And a very great multitude spread the clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Verse 9. Then the multitudes, look at this, who went before and those who followed. So this crowd is not in front of him or to the side. They're surrounding him. So part of the crowd is in front of him. Part of the crowd is behind him. And they're all shouting together this same statement. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The word Hosanna comes from the Greek, from the, from the he, Aramaic word, which means save now. They're not just crying out, save us now. They knew this, this is a quote from Psalm 118. I think it's verse 25 and 26. Yes, 25 and 26, which is known as the Hillel. It is a messianic psalm. What that means is that it is foretelling, foretelling the coming of the Messiah. So when they cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, 
to God in the highest, they are declaring that He is the Messiah. They're acknowledging that this is the Messiah, the King of Israel, that is coming into Jerusalem. So they have this expectation. So now we as disciples, not only do we see this when Jesus tells us to set him on a colt because that's the prophecy for the Messiah, the King of Israel, but now the crowd is confirming this. There's a groundswell coming up, up, rising up to acknowledge him as the Messiah as we enter in. So right now as disciples, our expectation are as the absolute highest. Our ambitions are the part we're going to play in this are at their highest. And our confidence is at the highest because all the circumstances around us confirm what we hope is the truth. Oh, but what happens this week begins to change all that. What happens this week begins to change all that. First of all, the very first thing Jesus does over in verse 12 is he goes into the temple. Jesus, the king, coming to gain the support of all the people, enters into the temple. Not to stand there as king. This is Jesus who is gentle. This is Jesus to whom the children gather around and sit in his lap. This is Jesus who has healed the sick and had compassion on a woman whose son was dead and even at the funeral had compassion on, his, on the sisters of his good friend Lazarus and raised him from the dead. This is Jesus who is the shepherd, the good shepherd, the gentle shepherd. He comes into the outer area of the temple and sees the money changers there. Now they had a right to be there. They were there because travelers would come in, especially the week of Passover, and they would want to make a sacrifice to the, in the temple, but they couldn't bring an ox on this whole trip or maybe even lambs or turtle doves or whatever they were to offer. So they would have to buy them and they would come with their own coinage, with their own currency, and they would have to exchange it into the currency of the temple. So these were money changers. They were supposed to be there, but they weren't there just doing that. They were making a huge profit off of what they were doing. And Jesus comes in there and he takes a cord and he wraps it around and turns it into a whip. And he drives them out of there. He turns the tables over. And he creates a riot in there out of anger. And we're standing on the side and saying, whoa, whoa, this is not the way to establish your kingdom. This is not the way to make friends and influence people. Because this is in the temple. What's going on here? This isn't what we expected. Then he goes on to make statements about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the big authorities that he's going to need their support. And he calls them a brood of vipers, whitewashed sepulchers. He says, woe unto you. Whoa, what's going on here? That's not way to get their support. Then he starts talking about what's to come and how we need to be prepared. He talks about a coming tribulation. And he says, when it comes, you better not be pregnant because it's going to be hard to run. You better, if you're out in the field, don't run back for your clothes. Take off. He talks about a judgment throne and a great judgment day when God's going to separate the lambs from the wolves, the sheep from the goats. He's talking about very hard things and the atmosphere in the city is beginning to change. 
This isn't the great triumph of claim that we expected to happen. What's going on here? Things are different. This is not what we thought. But they have Him still. They don't understand it. But they have Him still. They have Him still. But they can feel the tension. They can feel the mood of the crowd and of the city begin to shift. Thursday night, he gathers his disciples together to celebrate the Passover meal with them. Says some interesting things. Says, There's one among you who's going to betray me. Of course, we know that was Judas. But they all weren't sure. They kept questioning Is it me? Is it us? Who is it? He dips the sop and hands it to Judas and says, Go do what you've got to do. And Judas leaves, and it's John's account, I think. It says, And Satan entered him, and it was night. Wow, is that powerful. Now they know what's going on. They're confused. And so Jesus takes them out into the garden. He takes them out into the garden. But before he does, he says something to them. Let's go over to Matthew 26. Let's go to verse... Let's see. Let's pick up here. Verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days in the Passover, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. But they still didn't get it. Then the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas, and they plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, don't do this during the feast, let there be, lest there be an uproar among the people. And then starting in verse 17, Jesus celebrates the Passover with them. In verse 26, on down through verse 30, he institutes the Lord's Supper. He turns the Passover into the Lord's Supper. And he ends by saying, I won't drink this with you again until we share this in my Father's kingdom. And when they'd sung a hymn, that was Psalm 118, the Hillel, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. All of you, This isn't what they bargained for. This isn't what they expected when they came into the city. 
When they came into the city that Sunday before, they were expecting victory. They were expecting confirmation of what they've done. They were expecting, I mean, after all, if things looked a little shaky in the middle of the week, it, we've got the Messiah, we've got Jesus here. He's always led us through everything else before. Boy, when they tried to stone him and us, we just walked right through with him and came through the crowds. There have been times when the Pharisees have been around and we could feel their jealousy, but as long as we were with Jesus, everything was fine. Everything was safe. We could see him. We can touch him. We know where he is. And he says, you're going to be scattered because of me. Because it is written, when the shepherd is stricken, the sheep will be scattered. But they still don't get it. Look at Peter. This is Jesus telling them, there's a prophecy that's going to be fulfilled tonight. And Peter is so confident in his own intentions. He's not malicious. He's not evil. He's just confident in himself. He knows, he believes he knows his heart. He believes he knows what he would do. He believes he knows the, the degree of his, of his commitment. Peter answered, verse 33, and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Don't ever say that out loud. Because if you say that out loud, there's an alarm goes off in hell saying, We got one. There's a bullseye on your back because you've just announced, I got confidence in me. And there's a proverb that says, pride goes before a fall. Peter says, if all the rest of them stumble, I know I won't. And Jesus said to him, assuredly I say unto you, this night, tonight, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. He still doesn't believe that. Peter said, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. It's not just Peter. Go with me over to Luke 22. We're going to come back to Matthew here. But go with me to Luke 22. And I want to show you a little more that goes into this. This is important for our discussion today. We're going to sell you up before it's over. Luke 22, verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked, the word there means ask permission, for you that he may sift you as wheat. Whoa, 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 wait, what's, what's that all about? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus, are you telling me that Satan came and asked permission to sift us as wheat and you must have said okay because they're about to get sifted. What's all that about? Well, just hang on. In Job chapter 1 is the same story, similar story where Satan comes to God and God's been bragging about Job and Satan says in verse 9, does he serve you for no reason at all? In other words, Satan, who's the accuser of the brethren, came and accused Job to God saying, he serves you all right, but he's got something he's getting out of this. He's, he's got some ambition. 
He's got some expectation of what he's going to get out of this. God didn't bring all that on him. Satan brought it on. But it sifted Job because we don't have time to go into it, but we have talked about it before. It revealed some things in Job. Job didn't know what was in there. There was some self-righteousness in Job. There was some confidence in Job that wasn't obvious on the surface. And this is the same situation. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked permission to sift you. Now, as I was studying that, I discovered something I never knew before. In that verse where it says, Satan has sought permission to sift you, the Greek word for you is plural. See, if I say you, you don't know whether I mean Denny or all of you. Satan has asked permission to, to sift you, Denny. That may mean just Denny, or in the English, it may mean all of you, but I'm just talking to Denny. In Greek, you can tell the difference. In the Greek for this verse 32 is addressed to Simon, but it's applying to all of them, so he's saying Satan has come to sift all of you. But here's the good news. Look at the next verse. But I have prayed for you. That you is personal to Peter, that your faith would not fail, so that when you have returned, you are to strengthen your brethren. So Jesus has said, Satan has come to sift you, but I prayed for you so that your faith would not fail. And when you've come through the sifting, encourage your brothers. What's the sifting? It's what they were about to go through. Because their ambition, their expectation, and their confidence was about to be turned upside down in one night. Everything they had their confidence in The master has always been victorious. Their expectation, the kingdom is now going to come. He's the king. And our ambition, we're in this. We're right next to him. All of that was going to suddenly evaporate. Not just evaporate, but the attention was now going to get turned on them. They walk out of this time and they go into the garden and Jesus pulls away from the twelve from nine, then he takes three of them with him, Peter, James, and John, and then he pulls away from those three. And he goes off into a great agony, a great sifting that Jesus went through, where his will has to be submitted to the will and the plan of the Father. We read the Scriptures too quickly, but there was an agony in it. It says, sweat dropped from his face as if it were blood. I don't believe it was blood coming from his face. It could have been. But if you've ever seen a head wound, it bleeds like nothing else. It just, and the sweat was pouring off of him because of the agony he was in. Why? To submit his will under the will of his Father. And he didn't need to do it for his sake because he told them, look, I, have, I could call right now and legions of angels would come down and just pick me up and bring me back. And if he did that, he would go back to the right hand of the Father all alone. What was at stake wasn't him. What was at stake was your future and my future, your soul and my soul, your salvation and my salvation. 
And he was agony, going agony of this three times, it says. He had to come back to the disciples and then go back and get on his knees and wrestle this through again. Ever make a decision, you know, in prayer, and then you come back and you, oh, I don't know, and you've got to go back and do it again? Three times he had to do this. Hebrews 7 says, Jesus learned obedience by the things that he went through. And when he's finished, he stands up and comes to them. And they feel the ground rumbling. The grounds begin to rumble. And they look off in the distance and they can see light coming up the hill. And they can see torches. And as the torches get nearer, they can see that they're soldiers. And they realize they're the temple soldiers. They're not the Roman soldiers. And they see that, that, the, that the Pharisees have come. And right in front of them, leading them, is their brother Judas. And he comes up to their master. And he greets him with a kiss. Obviously signifying, testifying that this is the Messiah. This is the one that claims to be the Messiah. And they watched him bound. Peter reacts by taking a sword and cutting off the servant's ear. He's so angry. And Jesus heals the ear and says, you know, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. This is not, don't oppose this. They couldn't understand this. And they watched him taken away. Let's go over and look at... I've never seen this verse before. They've never paid attention to it before. Let's go over to verse 20, 26. Go back to Matthew 26. Go over to verse 56. Because we're part of this group now. Verse 55, let's go there. In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done so that the scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Through everything they'd been through, the one thing they knew, if everything went wrong, they could see Jesus. He was leading them. He would protect them. He would deal with the problem. And now the one they put their trust in, the one they put their hopes in, the one that they put their ambition in, was arrested and taken away like a common criminal. He didn't even argue with them. In fact, when Peter tried to fight this, he told Peter to be still and submit to it. We don't know the details of most of them. What we do know is that Peter followed him up to, the, up to the, 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 where Caiaphas' house was. And he sat outside. Of course, outside you could see inside. And he goes there and there's a young girl, a servant girl, who's warming herself with the others by the charcoal fire. And she looks at him and says, you don't look like the rest of us. Aren't, aren't you one of his? No. I'm not one of his. Someone else comes up to him and says, oh, no, no. I've seen you. I've seen you with the disciples. You're one of them. No! I don't even know who he is. And a third time, he's challenged. He says, yeah, you, you look like you're Galilean. I know. And it says in one of the versions, he cursed. That doesn't mean he used a swear word. He swore an oath that I don't even know who he is. To you and me, it's as if we put our hands on a Bible. and says, I don't even know who he is. I love Luke's account of this because it says what happens immediately, the, clock, clock, the cock crows, the rooster crows. And Peter remembers what Jesus said. See, he was so full of himself, he didn't pay attention to that. He was so confident in himself, he didn't pay attention to that. And now 
the rooster crowing reminds him of what Jesus said. In Luke's account, it said Jesus in the middle of this trial turns and looks at Peter. Oh, how those eyes must have penetrated through the pride and the confidence and the ambition and the expectation and penetrated down to the real heart and the realization was he had denied his Lord. The realization was he wasn't who he thought he was. And he was capable of something he never thought he could do that Jesus already knew. And as a result, he went out and wept bitterly. He was being sifted. We don't know a lot of details of the others. They fled. They went back to their lodgings. They eventually ended up in a room together out of fear that they were next, that they would be hunted down. They weren't in there in faith. They weren't in there having a great prayer meeting. They were scared for their lives. The only other one we know of where he was was we do know that John was the only one at the foot of the cross. He was with Peter's, with Jesus' mother, with Mary Magdalene and with the other women. The women were there. The men were hiding. It's been that way ever since in some ways. Not here. Amen. Well, let's now go. That's their sifting. Let's turn over to John chapter 20. And while we're turning, let's kind of turn all this that happened over 2,000 years ago and, and let's reflect now what this means about us. It's a nice story until now. When we came to Christ, He accepted us right where we are. And all of us, because we're human, just like the disciples, have had our own expectations of what that walk with Him was going to be like. For some of you, it may have been, hey, no more trouble, no more problems, I've given my life to the Lord. And you may have discovered that's not exactly the way it goes. You had your own expectations of what this was going to mean. All of us had some kind of ambition of what kind of Christian we were going to be and what God was going to do for us and what we were going to do here and what we were going to do there and what people might think of us as we grew as, we grew as a Christian and we became recognized for the gifts we had, whatever it may mean in your life. Some of us had confidence in ourselves, in our intentions, in our, in our commitment, as well as our confidence in the Lord. Somewhere along the line, you'll be sifted. Somewhere along the line, there'll be a test comes, and you'll find out you aren't where you think you are, you aren't who you think you are, and you can't do what you think you can do in your strength. Sometimes this sifting is traumatic. It just gets turned upside down. Sometimes it's a little more gradual, a little more, a little easier. I'm going to share with you quickly a testimony of my own life, and I've got others I could share, but this is the one that came to me first service. I'd always had in my heart growing up a desire, and I assume God must have put it there, to be in the ministry. I wasn't saved. My family wasn't saved as far as I know growing up. 
somewhere there was this desire, and 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 um, my grandmother used to take me to church. She used to sit me on her lap and, and read scriptures to me, and I'm so grateful for that. And then as I grew up and, and kind of you know got out on my own, went to school. Um, I, I, my, my mother remarried. I had a stepfather who was a, a, a brilliant lawyer, very successful. I developed a desire to be a lawyer, and and I still had down inside of me this thing about ministry. And then I got married. We began went to law school, began a career, and forgot all about the ministry. I still wasn't saved. And then in my middle thirties, I met a man and a woman. My, my wife and I did a couple who began to have an influence in our lives and. Through a long, making a long story short, through them and through their prayer and through their witnessing to us, we gave our lives to the Lord. This man had been a pastor for 20 years. Began to say things to me like, John, I, I think I see a call on your life. And I know he meant well, but he didn't realize the disservice he was doing me. I see a call on your life. And somewhere about a year or so into our walk with the Lord, I began to say, God, I think there's a call on my life. And what do we do? And the Lord led me to, to leave our, the law practice in the large law firm I was in in Boston, to leave our home in the suburbs of Boston and to move to Tulsa, Oklahoma, which I had no idea where it was. I thought I was banished to nowhere <laughs> because I'm from the Northeast where you have ocean, you have beaches, you have the beautiful seasons we have here. Everything out there was flat brown and they had water but it never moved. They tried to convince me it was the same as the ocean. They loved the lakes, but to me, I grew up by the water. And I kept saying, God, what did I do wrong? Make a long story short. We came back, joined that man that had called us, had, had, had led us to the Lord, joined him as he started a church, a small church. Through a whole series of events after about five or six years, he left and I ended up being the pastor of that church, the senior pastor of that church, small church. But I was always insecure. And I didn't realize it, but I was very insecure. So because I always needed the people's approval to verify and to affirm me that I was called. And later on I realized it because I was never sure whether that man called me or God called me. And the church struggled financially and, and a number of pastors came to help me and that was great. But one day Pastor Sam, the founder of this church took me to lunch and did what only he could do. He stuck that Texas finger of his in my face. He says, John, you need to get out of the ministry for your family's sake. If anybody else said that, I would have argued with him. In fact, some others had. But when he said it, it cut right through because there was an authority in his voice and I knew he cared for me. So we did and that's when we first started coming here in December of 1989. Then a while later, it was a year or so later, and I'm... Things are beginning to turn around in our family and our finances. And he takes me to lunch again. He said, I've been reflecting on all this. He says, you know what, John? I don't think you were ever called. Whoa. Anybody else had told me that, I would say, you just, you know. But when he said that to me, it shook me at my core. All I could think of is, I walked out of a lucrative law practice. I uprooted my family, sold our nice home, moved out to Oklahoma, went through all of that stuff, came back here and have gone through all of this 10 years and I wasn't called. That shook me at my foundation. I don't remember now how long later. I just remember where it was. 
God, through his infinite grace, opened an opportunity for me to get back to practicing law after 10 years. And if you practice law, you know how hard that is. But he opened the opportunity for me. And I was coming back from Worcester down through the old S-curves in Providence here. And I don't remember when it was, but I remember so clearly where I was. They're gone now. And I heard God speak to me. He had to let me calm down enough and speak to me. He said, John, what if I didn't call you? And I knew immediately what he was getting at. Because what I saw with that question in my heart was there always had been some ambition of my own to be in the ministry. And what I suddenly discovered is when I was in before, there was some of God and some of me mixed together. This is where I believe the disciples were. There was some of the call of Jesus and some of their own ambition mixed together. And God sifted that out by what they went through. And God used Pastor Sam to sift it out because when I saw the issue, what came out of my heart was, God, I don't want anything that you don't give me to do. And the moment I said that out of my heart, the pressure of all those years lifted off of me And for the first time, I felt peace inside that whatever God wanted is what I would do. And I wanted nothing that he didn't have for me to do. Well, isn't it interesting that only a couple of years later, Pastor Sam asked me for lunch again. His lunches were always significant. And he said, God's spoken to me and told me it's time to prepare for retirement. And he said, I've chosen Pastor David to, to be my, the, the senior pastor, but I would like you to come on staff as his associate. The man that told me I wasn't called then called me to serve in this position, and he didn't know that I would ultimately end up in this position. Was he wrong? No, God was using him to sift me. The sifting separates out the part of you that's you from the part that's God. And that's what these disciples were going through to sort out, separate out of them their expectations for what they wanted, their ambition for what they wanted to be and become, and their confidence in themselves as well as in Jesus. Because at the end of this day, there's nothing to have confidence in. At the end of this day, there is no expectation except the prospect of being arrested and crucified themselves There's no ambition except to live and survive. They were stripped of everything that they would have built or carried into this themselves. John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. Early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been rolled away. So she ran and came to Simon Peter, the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to him, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. Peter therefore went out, and the other disciple, and the other disciple, and were going to the tomb. And they both ran together. The other disciple outran Peter. Earlier it says the disciple whom Jesus loved, which if you read on in this book, it's clear it's John, the, writer, the author of the book. So John, John adds this little thing in here. Peter ran out first, but I overran him. I outran him. I could run faster than Peter. So there's still a little bit of this in him. 
Verse 5, and he, he, Peter, stooping down, looked in and saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. This was John, excuse me. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and saw the linen clothes lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first, that's John, went in also and saw and believed, as of yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. They'd heard it, but they didn't, still didn't understand it. And the disciples went away again to their own homes or their own place where they were staying. Mary stays outside the tomb, and Jesus appears to her. If you read on, you find later on that Jesus, they're huddled together in a room, and Jesus appears in the room. He didn't knock at the door and say, would you let me in? He just walked through the walls or just appeared. He is suddenly there, and he says, put your hands, your fingers in my hand holes. Put them in my feet, and he displayed to them that he was the risen Christ. At this point, they have only thing now they have to put their confidence in is the risen Lord. The only ambition they can have is the ambition He has for them. The only expectation they have is what He tells them to expect. They have been sifted out of everything that was their own. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. And this is where we're headed. This is where this applies to us. This is Paul's testimony of his journey. Verse 3. We are of the circumcision who worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. That's what we've been talking about. Ambition, expectation, and... and uh, um, what's the third thing? Whatever they are. Um, confidence. All of those were in their flesh, what they could do. Though I might have confidence in the flesh, Paul says, if anyone else may think they have confidence in the flesh, I more so. And now he's going to go through his resume, the things he used to have confidence in. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. In other words, I entered into the covenant of Abraham when I was, three, when I was uh, eight days old, which was what was prescribed. Uh, he, uh, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In other words, I was among the elite of the Hebrews. Concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. I was educated. I had a position. I had rank. I had title. Concerning zeal, he's talking about his own commitment, his own heart. Concerning zeal, I was persecuting the church. Concerning righteousness, which is under the law, the way I lived my life, I was blameless. But all these things that were, used to be gained to me I have counted as loss for Christ. Yes, indeed, I count all things as loss. The King, New King James says, for the excellent knowledge, that actually means for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and counted as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, not based on anything I've done, not based on my confidence in myself, not based on my expectations or my... not based on me at all. I've been stripped of all those things, that I may be found to having a righteousness, not from the law, but which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God by faith, why? And this is the focus, that I may know Him. That I may know Him, have a personal, intimate relationship with Him, not just that, and the power of His resurrection. So many Christians are powerless 
So many Christians for whom Christ was raised from the dead, remember His resurrection, what it won for us. Victory over death. There's no sting to death for a Christian. Victory over the fear of death, which Hebrews chapter 2 says is the root of all bondage, is the fear of death. But a Christian does not have death to fear because Christ has gone ahead of us, obtained the keys to death, then been raised from the dead. So we shouldn't be subject to bondage all our life. Fear. The bondage of sin. He's defeated the power of sin. And yet so many Christians are bound up by pornography, bound up by drugs, alcoholism, and all the addictions of the world that hold them in the power of their flesh when Christ has been raised from the dead and given us the power to overcome all that. Depression, discouragement, all the things that's out there that the world has sunk into. Not only that, the Bible tells us that the kingdom of God does not consist in food or drink, but of righteousness, of peace, and of joy in the Holy Ghost. When I heard that scripture, again, I'm saying, how many Christians do I know that when I look at them, I say, wow, are they full of joy? Wow, are they full of peace? Wow, are they full of righteousness? Most Christians I know have no peace, have no joy. And yet the sign of the kingdom of God alive in us is righteousness, peace, and joy. So somehow, although he was raised from the dead, we're not walking in the power of that resurrection that's been won for us. Why? Because we haven't followed His road. Paul says that I may know Him. And the power of His resurrection, oh, but there's more. And the fellowship of His suffering. That's not sickness and disease, because Jesus wasn't sick and wasn't diseased. Fellowship means the sharing. It means the persecution. It means the result of standing up for God and being different from the world and having people hate you, having people call you names, having people... Do you understand? We don't live in the same climate that the church was in 10 years ago. We're very much like the disciples were as the tenor and the atmosphere in Jerusalem began to change that week. When I became a Christian, it was like it was Christian Christianity was the predominant faith in the United States, and if people weren't Christians, at least agreed with the basic Judeo-Christian values and the Ten Commandments, didn't follow them, but they agreed with them. Now we're in a minority. Not only a minority, we're being named as hate mongers, homophobes. We're being called radicals, and it's going to get worse. The tone of the nation towards the church is shifting like the atmosphere did in Jerusalem that week. And what's going to happen is the things we've had confidence in, the expectations we've had, the ambitions we've had that were not of God are going to get shaken, if not lost. And Jesus told us really simply the key. If you're going to be a disciples of mine, you must take up your cross and follow me daily. That cross is not a disease or condition you have. The cross was not a place of sickness and disease. The cross was a place of death to yourself. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his suffering that I may be conformed to his death. What's that death? the death to me, the death to my, my ambition, what I want to happen. 
when God's Word says one thing and I have to debate it and decide whether I'm going to do it or not, that's that's my own kingdom. That's my own righteousness. That's my own ambition. That's my own will. That's got to die in order for the power of the resurrection to flow out in my life and then out of my life. And he goes on in the next verse to say that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's a different Greek word than the resurrection in the verse before. This word is the out-resurrection from the dead. But then the encouraging thing is he goes on to say, not that I've already attained it or have already been made perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. He laid hold of you for a reason. He laid hold of you for a purpose. Therefore, he says, forgetting what lies behind, I press on towards the high calling of God that's in Christ Jesus. And as many of you are of like minded, he said, if, you're not, don't, if you don't have that same will, God will show you that and he will bring that will about in you. I want to close with some encouragement for you. Romans chapter 8. This is not your typical resurrection message, but if you follow it, it will lead you to a resurrection. Romans chapter 8. Verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not, not also freely with him give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? By the way, there's only two. First is God. He won't because he justifies you. The only other one would be Christ. And who is he that condemns? It is Christ who died, furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who always makes intercession for us. So while you're going through the sifting, while your world may seem turned upside down or the world outside may seem turned upside down, we have his assurance that he's sitting at the right hand of God interceding for you just as he did for Peter so that his faith would not fail. I'm not going to turn there, but over in Romans... Well, yeah, let's go there quickly. Over in Hebrews chapter 7. I want to show you this. Hebrews 7, verse 20. Inasmuch as it was not made, he was not made a priest without an oath. That's a double negative. So in other words, inasmuch as he was a priest with an oath, for they became priests, this is the Old Testament, without an oath, but he was with an oath, who said, The Lord has sworn and will not resent you are priests forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so, so, such more, Jesus has become the surety or the guarantee of a better covenant. Why is it better? There were many priests in the old days, they were prevented by death from continuing. Why? Because they died a natural death. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is always able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So while you're going through a sifting that's stripping away from you your expectations of what's going to happen, your ambition and your confidence in yourself 
The one that sits at the right hand is interceding for you to come through that. This is something God began to deal with me about a while ago during the fast and began to talk to me about this and put his finger on things in there and says, I don't have this aspect of your life. I'm not talking about some practice in my life, a willingness. There were areas where I would balk if he said, this is what I want you to do. I said, yeah, but, but there are limitations. And God's saying, if I'm your Lord, there's no limitations. If I'm your Lord, there's no buts. If I'm your Lord, and I'm saying, you really want me to completely die to myself. I said, yes. I said, I don't know that I can do it. He said, I'll help you. And then a verse came to me. Oh. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. As you go through the process of dying to your ambition, your expectations, and your confidence, you have a shepherd who's not only at the right hand of the Father interceding for you, but he is committed to walk through that process with you. And his rod and his staff will protect you so that Satan, though he may sift you, he cannot have you because your shepherd is there to protect you. But notice what he says at the other end of that. It's a valley of the shadow of death, which means it's a shadow of a dog never bit anybody. It looks like death, it feels like death, but you won't die. And at the other end, he says, I will cause you to sit in the presence of your enemies. That's victory. I will cause you to sit in the presence of those things that have plagued you your whole life. Fear. Those things that have been your enemy that cry out at you and say, I can get you anytime I want. Pornography, alcoholism, addiction, whatever it is. Those things that have plagued you, you'll sit at the table and eat of the Lord and those things will growl at you and threaten you, but they can't touch you because you're dead. And you're a resurrected person in Christ. And then he goes on to promise. Surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. So be willing to go through. Don't resist the process. Be willing to go through. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And all of us in this room are in different places. But you know each one of us personally. You know where we are. We trust you right now, Father, and ask you to come by your Spirit into our hearts and deal with those areas that need to be dealt with so that this process may be complete in us. We thank you that you promise us that you're at work in us both to will and to do your good pleasure. And we say to you this morning, Lord, here we are work in our lives. Sift where you need to sift. Deliver where you need to deliver. Drive the nails in our hands where you need to drive the nails. Whatever may done, need to be done so that we may know Him and the power of His resurrection.